Cause when all your dreams have fallen through And your plans come crashing in on you Don't lose hope no matter how it seems Cause faith will take you closer Faith will keep you safer. Faith will take you farther than your dreams. Let's sing together Majesty. It's hymn 297. 297. Let's stand together as we sing. grateful this morning as we gather around um, your throne as brothers and sisters this morning. Father, mindful of the many blessings uh, that, that we are beneficiaries of because you are a good father. Father, we, we, we love you and we thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done uh, for, uh, for Christians throughout the centuries. Uh, father, and what you are continuing to do through your church today. Father, what a blessing it is to be, to be counted uh, faithful among uh, my brothers and sisters here at First Baptist. 
Um, Father, as we join um, collectively with our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, Father, we pray that, that, that the praise that is offered to you, the worship that is offered to you on this Lord's Day, uh, Father, that it glorifies your name, that it, that, it, that it advances the kingdom of God here on earth, and Father, that your gospel, the, the gospel of peace, the gospel of light is preached to darkness today. Father, may souls be saved. Uh, may, may, the, may the kingdom be enlarged to the glory of your precious name. And Father, as we, uh, as we offer this worship service to you this morning, Father, I pray that it, uh, that it, that it is a blessing to you, that it is pleasing to you, and that the faithfulness of your people, uh, Father, is, uh, is what catalyzes the worship of, uh, this, of this hour. Father, bless our song, bless the reading of your word today, bless the preaching of it, um, and Father, may we be drawn closer to you uh, in this time of worship. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name, and amen. One of the parts I really enjoy about serving in the capacity of worship leader is the chance to uh, help teach the congregation of the choir some new hymns. And this is not a brand new one because we've been singing it for a year or two, but it's one of the newer hymnals, one of the newer hymns in our hymnal, uh, Hymn 112, Grace Alone. And as you hear in in this service today, um, Brother Ben is going to be speaking about grace, and we're going to be singing all about God's amazing grace. But look at Hymn 112. If you if you don't know the tune as well, look at the text because it's a beautiful text about the amazing power of God's grace. Grace alone, which God supplies, strength unknown He will provide. Christ in us, our cornerstone. We will go forth in grace alone. Let's worship together as we sing. Bye. 
wonderful truth this morning from that song. Uh, from the Word of God this morning, we, we, we go to Psalm 89, and I love, so I, I, think, I think this is one of those uh, passages of Scripture that was designed to be spoken out loud with lots of, uh, of fervor and intensity and just enthusiasm for God. Um, I, it's kind of part and parcel, so verses 7 through 9, verse 11, and verses 13 through 15 of Psalm 89. But the, the, the theme here is the grace of God, the goodness of God that is, uh, that is shared among the assembling of the saints. And so from Psalm 89, we read this beginning in verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. And high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Amen, church. Beautiful passage from the psalmist this morning as we read the word of God in the house of God this morning. Let's stand together as we sing all the verses of amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Yeah. 
the book of Ephesians this morning, chapter 2. As you're turning in with me in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses of that, of that chapter. Um, just to kind of begin a new sermon series uh, uh, that we're going to start today. Uh, to, while, while you're turning in your Bibles, I want to kind of speak to the, to the, to the gift. Uh, I, I mean, I, I really feel like in many ways I'm the one that's blessed to be able to, to stand here and to pastor such an amazing group of people. Um, God has called us divinely from the foundations of the world to be here and to do this work. And, uh, and just in just talking to Richard, I know he feels the same way. And we're both filled with gratitude to be able to serve here at First Baptist Church. And to just be able to, to worship alongside you, to work alongside you in the Lord. Uh, I think, and, and Richard, if he could say, he'd probably just say that it's, it's just a pleasure to serve. It really is a pleasure to serve, and I know that's true for me, and I know Richard's heart, and he, he feels the same way, and, um, and so thank you all for the gift. Thank you all for your love and your support and your prayers. Um, so the ministry is ongoing. Um, uh, I'm just looking forward to what the Lord has for us in the future. For today, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Uh, we're going to start a new sermon series today about the five solas of the Reformation. Now, the, the, the kind of the thesis to this is that um, in, in, our American, um, in our American culture, Halloween is coming up on uh, November, or rather October the 31st. And uh, oftentimes, as is the culture, as the way it is, that's what most people know October the 31st as. In the church, however, October the 31st, for the last 506 or 7 some odd years, that has been known as Reformation Sunday. And so in honor of that, that event, uh, the, the Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, um, it seemed right to me as the Lord kind of led me in the direction of to, to, to really teach and to preach through these five solas of the Reformation. Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of background, just so a little context, because I don't want to bore you with the history of it all. But it's all important as we begin to look at Scripture um, especially today, um, sola gratia, which is by grace alone. Um, these, these, these five solas weren't necessarily things that, that they, they, they weren't necessarily pillars that they stood on while they made the movement. They were things that they believed that emerged out of the movement itself. Um, uh, as we begin to look at the word of God this morning, as we begin to set all this up over the next five weeks, we, we can look back in hindsight and we can have the appreciation of knowing how things developed and how they grew and why they were the case. Church history is vast. It covers 2,000 years of, 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 of men and women faithfully and obediently serving God. Now, early in his conception, the church, I mean, early in the church's conception, the church was largely a loose connection of home churches, uh, it was a loose connection of scattered congregations and underground networks in different places. But as Christianity became more tolerated and in some places welcomed, um, the, 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 the cohesion began to form. These networks began to grow into collective organized bodies, synods and councils and churches and things like that. Now, one of the more prominent congregations that would grow over these last 2,000 years would, would come from Rome. One of the first century church plants that grew came from Rome, and, and it began to, to grow into this body 
that they began to uh, describe as universal. And that word of universal church is what we know today as Catholic. The Catholic church, the Catholic means universal. Uh, The Catholic church began to grow and emerge, especially by the 600s, uh, as a very powerful and prominent institution. Now, during the Roman Catholic years, uh, the church's leaders began to take the church down a very dark and anti or antithetical to Scripture, anyway, path. They began to abandon certain principles that were foundational to specifically salvation. And as we go through these five solas of the Reformation, salvation was of specific consequence to the Reformers. Okay? Now, the, the reason for that is, as we go through this understanding of the church, the church began to become the gatekeeper of salvation. If you wanted to come to God, if you wanted to, to come to God in salvation, if you wanted to come to him in grace, in faith, etc., then you had to go through the church. And the church leaders began to set up an institution, even uh, the apostolic authority that they claimed uh, solidified in what's known today as the Pope. They began to build doctrines that were antithetical to Scripture, building an institution that looked much different than it was previously founded in its early years. Now, just a little over 500 years ago, as I've already said, a German monk named Martin Luther Um, Very concerned about this pattern. Very concerned specifically, as we talk about sola gratia today. He became very uh, very concerned about the church's approach to these fundamental issues of salvation. Uh, For example, the 95 theses that he nailed on the door in church in Germany outlined 95 things that really centered around what were called indulgences. And indulgences were... Were, were, were merits of forgiveness. They were, they, were, they were merits of grace that were sold by the church to people who, who, could, who, could, who could activate them or instit- to institute them for people who were living in purgatory, for example. Okay? They, were, they, were, they, were, they were little letters of grace that you could buy and that you could, you could, you could get someone out of purgatory and get them into paradise. And so as this practice began to unfold, Martin Luther became very concerned. So on October the 31st, he protested. And he began a movement uh, called the Reformation that is still alive today. Now, other than the Catholic Church, we have denominations that have emerged from this Reformation that we call Protestant. Uh, we have the Luther, Lutheran church that started. We have, we have all of these different denominations of Methodism and Baptist and all these other kinds of things. All of these were, were, were efforts to return to the basic tenets of Scripture that had become lost through the power structure of the Catholic institution. And so today, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, I want to look at sola gratia, which means by grace alone. As, as the backdrop is salvation, is the issue, the, the doctrine, the principle that is of consequence to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, it was, it was equally as important to the reformers that, that, the, that people knew that salvation came by grace alone. So let's stand together. Let's read these words from Paul, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 
as we understand sola gratia. And you, he says, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we come into your presence this morning upon the reading of your word, Father, we're grateful that salvation comes by grace alone. Father, that it is only through the grace of God that we can stand here as believers, fully justified uh, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we know and we're very well and presently reminded even in our flesh that we used to walk according to the lusts of that flesh, as our brother Paul tells us. But by grace... You have saved us from that life. Father, that you have given us a new life in Christ Jesus and that you continue to sustain us through your amazing grace. Father, as as we now read your word and as the reading of your word has now been conducted among your people, bless it now. May it glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So basically the way I want to look at this today is is the sermon outline is broken into two parts. Really, what is biblical grace? What is is it about grace that that is so important, so consequential to the believer? And how does that apply to the Reformation? How does it apply to us today? Because, because if we, if we abandoned or, or we walk away or we modify like what the Catholic Church was doing, if we abandon this principle, then we lose sight of what salvation truly is. At least godly salvation. At least what the Bible outlines as salvation. And so the, the best place to start, and, as, and Paul does this here, is, is to define what is grace. What, what are we talking about when we talk about biblical grace? Because Paul uses this phrase, by grace you have been saved, three times in that passage. Okay? Reminding us that it's by grace. It's by grace. It's by grace that you have been saved. And so we have to start there. We have to define biblical grace in order to understand how and how appreciated in our lives today. Well, what is it? First of all, concerning unbelievers, biblical grace is the means by which God saves unbelievers. Okay? Amen. And that's true, because as we look at this passage from our brother Paul, Paul's, this ten verses is really separated into two parts. Who you used to be in your flesh, and who you now are in Christ. That's how he, that's how he lays this out. He says in Ephesians 2, in a sort of treatment on unbelievers, he defines what unbelievers look like, what they sound like, and that they are at enmity with God. Verse 1, you are made alive 
who were once dead in trespasses and sin. You once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, you also we all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We fulfilled the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. And so this is an important point because what Paul is getting at is that, 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 that unbelief, if you will, is, is really what undergirds the doctrine that all men are born into depravity. All men are born into sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, when reiterating Psalm 14, says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They are all turned aside. They have become unprofitable. There is none good, no, not one. Paul's beginning point here is that all people... We are all, we were all, according to this doctrine, in sin. We were conceived in it. We were depraved from the beginning. And so as Paul's words begin to, to, begin to, to, to outline that, it begins to crescendo. And I, I didn't do it very well with my voice or with the, the volume of my voice. But Paul is really, he's laying this out and it's crescendoing all the way to verse 4. We were all dead. We all walked according to the conduct of the lusts of our flesh. And then verse 4 happens in those two words. But God fundamentally and entirely and eternally changes the course of mankind's depravity. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead... He stepped in and made us alive through Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. You see, this part in the parentheses, it's in a parentheses in my Bible. But this is a unique injection. Paul Paul didn't have to put in, by grace, you have been saved. But he did so because he wanted us to remember that it's it's by the grace of God that we who were once dead are now alive in Christ. He puts that in there because he wants us to summarize the the fullness of the fact that it's only by the grace of God that we can live at all. How can that which was formerly dead bring any new life to itself whatsoever? And Paul says, by grace you have been saved. You see, this is this is the place in the, in the church, the centuries of teachings of the Catholic church. This is where the doctrine of God's saving grace had been lost. Grace, I mean, here you can consider this. Grace in the Catholic church had been reduced to a, to a purchase of an indulgence. Right? If, let's, let me just personalize it. If, if you have a, maybe you have a child and they died. Maybe they weren't like wicked they weren't evil, right? They died, but they didn't necessarily, weren't good enough for heaven. They, were, they went to a place that the Catholic Church created called purgatory, which was really just a capitalistic effort to sell indulgences. They went to a place called purgatory, and they weren't good enough for heaven, so they were in this waiting period, this waiting place so that they could accumulate righteousness so that they could be moved on to heaven. Well, if you wanted to help little Johnny along, 
and you wanted to help him become more righteous, well, then you'd go to the Catholic Church, buy an indulgence, and then that would be accounted unto him for righteousness. The grace of God was on sale to people who have no hope. And the church was marketing off of it. The church was making money off of it. That's how far down into the ditch depravity had caused grace to fall. And Paul, reminding Martin Luther, who's reminding us this morning, that it's the grace of God, is the means by which salvation comes to the unbeliever. It's not through the church. It's not through the preacher. It's not through anybody but by Christ. Grace comes. God looks upon the pitiful condition of the unbeliever. And in short, through that unmerited favor, through that grace, he looks upon them with pity. And he brings them to new life. You see, it's by God's grace that salvation is even possible at all. We sang the song Amazing Grace just a while ago. The song, was, the song was sung written by a man who knew all about the amazing grace of God and spent a whole life selling people into slavery and had come to a moment of, of understanding clarity in which the grace of God was applied in his life and he was able to walk away from the slave trade a new man, a new creation in Christ and wrote that song for us to sing years later. That's the beauty of the grace of God. It's, it's through the grace of God that salvation is even possible. It's, it's because only by the grace of God can unbelievers even merit any favor from God at all. Because they have done nothing to deserve that. They have done nothing to earn that. They have done nothing to merit that favor. It's only by God's grace that a holy being can deal in any way whatsoever with a sinful rebel. And that's Paul's point here, is that salvation is the means by which God saves unbelievers. Now, once the grace of God is applied into that unbeliever's life, grace has an additional, uh, an additional action. And that's, that's to, to, to take an imperfect person and equip them for divine work. And that's our second point. God's grace is the means by which God takes an imperfect individual. Those people who by own their own admission are not good enough, they're not smart enough, they're not clever enough, they're not ready enough, they're not ever anything enough. It's the way God takes people like that and then equips them to do work that he has called them to do. Now, I know this is especially this is especially meaningful to me because apart from the grace of God, there's no way that I could stand in this pulpit and deliver anything that is of any importance or value to the eternal nature of God's gospel. But by the grace of God, he has called me to this place. By the grace of God, he has called you to this place. And he has equipped us, each one, with a giftedness that equips us to do good work. I know I oftentimes hear this, and I oftentimes reflect upon in my own capacity that, 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 that in our own limitations, in our own inabilities, in our own humanity, we, we are left feeling inadequate. And that's, that's true. Now, humility will do that. 
It will cause you to think that way anyway. But, 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 but even sometimes in our own understanding of things, our own recognition of our sinfulness or our own recognition of our past or whatever the case may be, Satan can use that to debilitate the work that God has called you to do. And so God steps in with his grace and he equips you with divine power. He equips the believer with a giftedness that comes through the Spirit of God. He equips the believer with humility. He dresses them. He clothes them with humility so that they don't make it about themselves. They make it about God. God's grace equips a believer with the right knowledge that is needful for personal growth, that's needful for the work that he or she is called to do. So it's not according to our own abilities, it's not according to our own giftedness and in the, in, the, in, the, in the cleverness of our minds or in the, in the works of our hands. It's not to say that grace has anything to do with our natural ability. It's the divinely inspired inspiration of God that equips us to do those things. Now imagine how many of us, if asked to do something for God, right now, right here, and we didn't feel like we were ready, would give God a whole list of excuses. Would God give God a whole list of, of, of well, are you sure? Are, are, you, are, are you not aware of this? Are you not concerned about that? I mean, in, in the grace of God, apart from that grace, that's the questions that we're left with. I mean, and look, I mean, let's be honest. There's been lots of heroes in Scripture. Lots of heroes. Gideon. I mean, Moses, I mean, you, you name any of these people who were of great faith still looked at God and said, are you really sure about this? Are, 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 you, are you sure you want me? Because I, I don't know that you've got the right person, right? But God didn't care necessarily. I mean, do you think, first of all, that God didn't already know that? That, that when he calls individuals, when he appoints them to divine tasks that he hasn't already considered, you know what? Yeah, that, part, that person's not smart enough. They're not clever enough. They're, not, they're, not, they're probably not, they're not knowledgeable enough. They're probably not ready. But my grace will get them there. My grace will take care. They will, it will make them ready. It will make them capable. It will make them willing. Because without that grace... There is no way an imperfect person can do perfect work. It's just impossible. But God's grace activates them to do that work. Now, once that grace is activated in their life, we get to this third part of biblical grace. It's the means by which God sustains believers who are flawed in their humanity. Is my bottle of water down there? Oh, yeah, there it is. Take your time for a second. Talk amongst yourselves. Who's on cameras up there? Was it Landon? Mark? I just threw Mark a curveball. Mark's scrambling up there trying to the joystick. He's like he's playing a video game up there with me as I'm getting my water. You okay up there, Mark? You good? Okay. We can continue. Grace is, yeah, it saves unbelievers. It equips them. But it also sustains them. And I think this is the ongoing nature of our reflection in our believing life as Christians. 
right? As believers who are, who are called to do work, who are equipped to do work, and that kind of thing, we, we have to at some point have a mechanism inside of us that sustains us. Because without it, we wear out. We tire out. Well, as in the South, we call it, we tucker out. Isn't that what we say? Or is that in the West? We tucker out. That's out West, isn't it? Oh, well. We get wore out. That's just the point to it. Because we're human. And we have our limits. We have our flaws. We even have our sinful tendencies. But God, in His grace sustains us. Now, there's probably arguably no better place in scripture to turn for this than 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 10. I won't ask you to turn there, but in this context is the apostle Paul and he's on his knees and he's praying for God to remove a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. Paul identifies it as a messenger of Satan. That's how he saw it. It was sent to buffet Paul in divine work that God had called him to do. Here is the Apostle Paul, the great, amazing, faithful apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle to the Gentiles, who had already at this point done amazing things. He had seen amazing things. He had gone to amazing places and had seen the grace of God evident in the salvation of unbelievers. Yet here he is reduced on his own knees, praying three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh. Grace of God was obviously was evident in Paul's conversion. It saved him. Grace of God was obviously evident in Paul's calling to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. But now we see the grace of God. Where's my next slide here? I'm, 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 I'm in my, am I, yeah, go to my next one. There it is. No, that's not it. Anyway, but now we have the, 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 the apostle of the Gentiles needing God to help him, sustain him, despite the fact that he's got something holding him back. So whatever Paul's thorn in the flesh was, it obviously didn't bring glory to God like Paul would have liked it to have. In fact, in turn, it made Paul weak. It made Paul self-conscious. It made him hurt. It filled him with pain, the knowledge that God was not being glorified by his entire self. But instead of God taking that away from him, God chose to leave that thorn there and give to him a beautiful reminder of how the grace of God was all that Paul needed. In the the words of our Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Man of God, called, equipped, and amazing. Now being sufficiently held in the grace of God. My strength, Jesus says, is made perfect, Paul, in your weakness. To which Paul responds, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, it's the grace of God It's true. I mean, it's true that none of us are perfect. It's true that all of us are susceptible to the lusts of the flesh. It's true that we're all tempted to sin against God and against each other. So, it's also true that we need something to sustain us through those times. Paul tells us that it's by the grace of God. 
Now, I know that this, this oftentimes doesn't mean anything until you need it. Oftentimes, it's in our moments of weakness. It's in our moments of despair. It's in our moments of fear that the grace of God sustains us is when we see it the most, when we appreciate it the most. Any other time, it's like we're just going on as business as usual. The grace of God is there. It's sustaining us. It's providing for us. But when, when we feel weak, tired, afraid, that's when the grace of God activates and says, look, I know. I get it. I understand. God understands the, the, the human situation, the sinfulness of it. He understands that, which is why he hardwired grace into it. Because by God's grace, we can have sustaining power. Now, this is, this is the biblical definition. This is why the grace of God is needful. This is the biblical definition for it. This is, this is Paul, Ephesians 2. 2,000 years later from church history removed, we had this, this, this a major upheaval in Christianity that, that had to cause us to go back to it. So when we look at it today, how does this apply to our lives today? And this is Paul's latter half, verses 4 through 10. Paul's concern. Why does grace matter? Why or how does it apply to the believer's life? Good question. Paul explains it to us here in this passage. The reformers, uh, coining the phrase sola gratia, by grace alone, wanted to return us in our minds, in our hearts, in our theology, back to God's original design for salvation. And that's the first point. Sola gratia gives the believer, me and you, a right understanding of salvation. Why is that important? Because we probably sit here today, it's like, well, so what? I've been saved for thousands of years. I've been saved for, from all these different things. I'm going to heaven and all that kind of thing. Uh, thousands of years was, that, that's, that's sarcasm, okay? Some of you haven't been around for thousands of years, right? Okay. I didn't get any no's on that. <sighs> we'll talk about it after church. What does it matter? A right theology of salvation. Why, why, does, why should that concern individuals who have been saved for a long time? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in our theology, if we don't apply things like grace alone, and as we additionally add to these five solas, faith alone, by Christ alone, according to scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone, if we don't apply those five things to salvation, then we get heresy. We get teachings like, I can lose my salvation. I know this is one of the more argumentative points when it comes to salvation. But as believers of Scripture, listen to me. As believers of the Bible, nobody should walk to salvation or walk up to salvation, receive salvation, and then walk away from it believing they can lose it. Nobody. Why? Because it's a work of God, not of man, lest anyone should boast. When we, when we don't have a right approach or understanding or, or, or knowledge of salvation, then we begin to believe those kinds of things. And they're just fundamentally not true. Grace alone is where Paul starts. When the reformers would speak against the abuses 
of God's grace, they were emptying, to, they were emptying the, the doctrine itself of the correct and right understanding concerning grace. Because if, if grace is the means by which salvation comes, then it's a huge component of a right relationship with God. With a wrong understanding of grace, the believer might be tempted to believe in what's called, where Paul concerned, Paul was a works-based salvation. A merited honor system that earns salvation. Do this, don't do that, I'm saved. In the, in the church, Catholic church, that was a big deal. Right? You went to mass, you, you went to, um, what's it called when you go into the, the, the what's it called? Confession. See, you knew. See, that's that's when you know you're 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 you're, you're listening. You're you're answering my questions. You're preaching my sermon now. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I mean, confession. My goodness. How how far away from faith in God alone can you get? You know, I'm here to help as a counselor hear your confessions and, and sin and, and, and guide you back by the word of God to the fellowship, the grace of God. I'm here for that, but I can't forgive you of your sin. And that is a fundamental preaching of or teaching of the Catholic Church. And so if grace can be bypassed or if God's grace can be bypassed by a priest... What good is it? What value does it hold? How strong or how powerful can it actually be in the life of an individual? But with the right understanding, for by grace you have been saved, you have a right understanding of salvation. And we can get back to the nuts and bolts of salvation. Now, sola gratia doesn't necessarily only concern itself with a right design for salvation, but it, but it wants to eliminate one part of that, which I've kind of already acknowledged, which it, it refocuses salvation on that it's a gift of God, not a work of God, not a work of rather man, not an earned merit of people. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, semicolon, a whole new sentence, It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, those two verses are, I mean, they are, and they're probably verses of Scripture that you probably learned in Sunday school as a child. They're probably verses of Scripture that you have memorized. And and, and to this day, you probably love them and cherish them. But to an individual who has a wrong understanding of God's design for salvation... They can, they can confuse it for a merit system. You get these stickers from God. You were good today. You're a good boy. You're a good girl. You didn't do anything bad today. You didn't cuss. You didn't lie. You didn't speed. Oh, I love doing that kind of thing because everybody starts looking around. Some of you are, 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 are good at you're well-trained. You just know better than to look. You didn't fuss at your spouse today. Oh, y'all are good. You know what, you know what I'm saying, though? You know, it's not a sticker-based salvation where you have this attaboy, girl system. 
Sola gratia returns us to the thought, to the knowledge, to the awareness personally that salvation that you have is a gift. It's unmerited and it's unearned. It's a true gift of God. This means that grace then is the means, the method, the process by which grace comes to people through the good pleasure of his will by no knowledge of our own. God saves those whom he wills. This means that no human behavior can merit it, modify it, gain it, or lose it. And this oftentimes, and I have had this conversation many times, and I'm not afraid of this conversation, is that when we, when we think about salvation in terms of losing and, 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 and sustaining, what, what does that mean for people who, who maybe walk away from the faith or maybe commit suicide or things like that? Well, if we come to the resolution, if we come to the scriptures and we are resolved to know that salvation is a work of God, a gift of God, something that he ordained from the foundations of the world that Christ secured on the cross and that the Holy Spirit seals until the day of redemption. If we believe that wholeheartedly and biblically, then there's nothing we can do to unearn salvation. That once it's given to us, it's eternally secured in God, not us. And we don't do things or or, uh, not do things to undo its merits. It's a work of God. And the right understanding of salvation is prefaced with grace alone. It's misunderstandings about salvation, about losing it, etc. can be eliminated easily When we eliminate a works-based salvation, it's ordained by God from the foundations of the world, secured in Christ, sealed by the Spirit. Sola gratia does one last thing Paul says here in verse 10, and I want to remind you of that before we close. Sola gratia reaffirms us that man is a product of God's favor. This is beautiful too, by the way. And Paul, Paul kind of adds this as a closing remark. It's, it's not an addendum because it still follows the, same, the same, same line of logic. But many of us, when we get to, for by grace we have been saved through faith, not only of yourselves, a gift of God, lest not of works, lest anyone should we usually stop. But the verse continues to say, for we are his workmanship. His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the reformers were concerned about a right understanding and how grace reaffirms that we are what we are only by the grace of God. That we are who we are in Christ by the grace of God. And that if it weren't for the grace of God, this morning, any of us would be capable of any of the worst atrocities that have ever been known to man. Apart from the grace of God, we, you, I, could be in prison, addicted to drugs, or any other thing. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would all be hopelessly lost 
to sin, hell, and, and the grave, death. We would have no hope. But by the grace of God, we're not those things. Because of the grace of God, we sit here at the feet of Christ, much like the demon-possessed man once did in the region of the Gadarenes. Man, violent, breaking chains, screaming out all hours of the day, cutting himself, doing all kinds of manner of harm to him and himself and others, who comes to Christ and receives the grace of God and salvation. And we find this man, this man tame, sitting at the feet of Christ. See, by the grace of God, that, that story is only possible. It's by the grace of God this morning that we aren't filled with legions of demons like the poor man in Acts, or rather Mark, chapter 5. Many people do walk around today with legions of demons attaching to themselves pronouns like they and them. But by the grace of God, we sit here set free. It's by the grace of God that we are raised to new life like Lazarus, Tabitha, Jairus' daughter, Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. You see, without the grace of God, healing and wholeness and life would not be possible. What we would get is the alternative, death and destruction and disease. You see, these are things that are common to the world because they are apart from the grace of God. The reformers wanted the people of God to know. They wanted them to live in a way where they rightly understood that they were who they were, not because of Rome or because of the Pope, but because of the grace of God. And as your pastor today, reading from our brother Paul, I want you to know that you are who you are by the grace of God. By the grace of God alone. You are what you are and you are who you are. And you sit here today in like manner because of the grace of God. Not of yourself. Not of your, not of your last name. Not of your membership. Not of your good works. But by Christ. And by Him alone. Salvation has come. Our brother Paul the reformers, gratia, sola gratia, reminds us of these things, reminds us that we are, by the grace of God, children of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for this word. And Father, as we bring it to a close, and uh, Lord, we bring the preaching of your word to an end anyway, Father, I pray that, that this, this word glorifies you, that, that we can sit here today with a right understanding, a biblical understanding of grace. That, Father, not only did your grace save us, but that, that it equips us and that it sustains us. Father, may we never forget those things. May we not let anyone else tell us anything otherwise, whether it be an angel from heaven or a false teacher. 
if they preach anything other than grace alone, as Paul said, let them be accursed. Father, we stand here today solely justified by your grace, by your favor. You looked on us. We don't know why, but you looked on us with pity at a time in our lives when we needed it the most. And you've taken us out of darkness and put us into light. You've taken us out of the sinking sand and you've placed us on the firm rock of Christ. You've taken us out of confusion and given us clarity. Taken us out of death and given us new life. Father, our word today, our text today from, from Paul reminds us that it's by grace. Father, may we never abuse your grace. May we never continue in sin so that grace may abound. But Father, may we always ever fondly look upon you with thanksgiving for what you've done according to your amazing grace. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people and thank you for the faithfulness to your word. May it not return unto you void this morning. We pray this now in Christ's name. And amen. And when all your dreams have fallen.